the afternoon of January 17, 1856, a group of riders crossed on the Rio Grande into Texas near Paso del Aguila, or as the Americans called it, Eagle Pass. Although the U.S.-Mexican War had made the Rio Grande an international boundary, the men crossed it as they would any river, at a place that seemed convenient and without informing authorities. Still, crossing the river was not as easy as it had been before the war. Upon learning of their crossing, the U.S. Deputy Customs Collector for Eagle Pass ordered two agents to pursue the riders. When the agents returned with the men, the Deputy Collector discovered the crossers had failed to declare nine Spanish horses, eight saddles, eight blankets, seven bridles, and two ropes. The Deputy Collector promptly seized the goods because they had been smuggled into the United States. The establishment of the Rio Grande as an international boundary at the end of the U.S.-Mexican War made many aspects of everyday trade illicit by placing international regulations and tariffs on local commerce. Rather than accept these seemingly arbitrary restrictions, border people sought to continue carrying goods freely across the Rio Grande. State agencies' ta taxation and seizure of borderlanders' property, especially their personal belongings, interfered with common practices and created resentment. As, as this chapter shows, border people responded to state-imposed trade restrictions by creating their own values about what was and what was not illicit trade within a moral economy of smuggling. Illicit trades increasing profits spurred sophisticated criminal networks whose members crossed the line between merchants and mafiosos. On June 12, 1922, over two years after word reached Mexico City of an association of contrabandistas operating in Reynosa, Francisco Perez, the Mexican consul in Hidalgo, informed superiors that smugglers evaded consular duties on more than 100,000 worth of merchandise. A year later, in a report on illicit trade along the border, Perez recommended the employment of secret agents to monitor the vast amount of smuggling taking place there. The government needed secret agents because local witnesses did not step forward for fear of retribution. As an example, Paris cited a group of traffickers apprehended on October 20, 1921, who attempted to defraud the government of over 250,000 worth of revenue, and who after a time were set free, had their merchandise returned, and now threatened the same authorities who apprehended them. Mexican traffickers' willingness to intimidate and corrupt law enforcement illustrates their, their growing power beyond the customary moral economy of smuggling. State failures against organized smugglers, in turn, bred apathy among lo local authorities, who unsurprisingly proved uncooperative in federal investigations. And that is from Border Contraband, A History of Smuggling Across the Rio Grande by George T. Diaz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined by Josh Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. Hello, Melissa. Yeah, Josh, thanks for being here. It's yeah, good to have you thank back. Thank you. I love the passage that you read. Thank you. The The reason that I chose it is because the author in this book, he looks at, you know, what smuggling has looked like at different times, right? And so he starts by talking about how smuggling looked like after the imposition of the legal border and tariffs back then. And then he kind of jumps to after the 1910 Mexican Revolution, where smuggling looked a little bit different, right? There was all right. this 
contrabando. So, you know, drugs, guns, alcohol after prohibition as well. Sure. And then, you know, he also talks about how a lot of the local residents and even the politicians and the smugglers tolerated a certain degree of smuggling. And a lot of people looked the other way because they saw it as their right, right. in a sense. Right. And then at the end of the book, you know, the author also goes into what that looked like after World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, you know, a lot more surveillance placed at that point. But with more surveillance come new sophisticated ways to evolve in smuggling. Yeah. So yeah. I thought that was interesting. We, we've talked about this a lot in our podcast, how a lot of history repeats itself. And so reading about how this has been an issue for so long and seeing the issue now at the border, I thought would be a good way to segue into what you did this week, which is you were just at the border yourself. I was. So well. I made it a point not to ask you a lot about this earlier today because I wanted <laughs> you to fill me in along with our listeners on, on what that was like. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Uh, I and some colleagues and some organizational allies of ours did spend uh, three days at the border. We essentially uh, started in McAllen in the Rio Grande Valley and then traveled upriver, uh, ending in uh, Laredo. And actually, we mm -hmm. currently have a colleague right now. Uh, the yeah. estimable Corrine Martinez, who is uh, on her way to um, Paso de Aguila, uh, Eagle Pass. Paso de Aguila. It was interesting. I, I, I did not know. You know, of course, the, the, the Mexican town across the river from Eagle Pass is uh, Piedras Negras, right. which is um, uh, the birthplace of the nacho. Uh, very That's important. Right. Very yeah. important for world civilization and culture to know that the birthplace of the nacho is there. They have an annual nacho fest. Uh, it's I think it's in October. Someday I want to go to it. Um, but uh, I, I didn't realize that uh, Eagle Pass was taken from Paso de Aguila. Um, I, in fact, I don't even know. You tell me. What's a piedras? Que significa piedras? piedras? Rock. It's rock. Oh, it's yeah. black rock. Yeah, black rock. That, 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 yeah. Interesting. So I guess I guess Paso de Aguila has disappeared into uh, disappeared into history. Guess so. The passage is interesting, you know, because uh, because it talks about this desire to um, initially to uh, trade within the region, right? And I think it's I think right. it's worth illuminating. The whole border is not the same, uh, so it's not it's not a unity even within Texas. Uh, there's different qualities to different sections of the border. Right. The section of the border that uh, that uh, that Paso de Aguila, that Eagle Pass, uh, belongs to, um, uh, is 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 more or less continuous with. Uh, it's, it's, it's not Nueva Santander, but it's close enough for our purposes. Uh, this this sort of unity of um, uh, culture and settlement that was established in the 1750s um, uh, under under Escandon, uh, which was which was a Spanish kind of the final act of right. uh, Spanish conquest, and uh, and so and so when a formal international border is established in 1848. The, the, there's a real sense that uh, the Rio Grande was not supposed to be um, uh, the, the terminus of, of, of a region, but, but but the centerpiece of it. And so, of course, mm -hmm. you trade over it, and that and that ends up becoming sort of the origin of local smuggler culture, right? right. Because you know you know what what one might see as smuggling from kind of an, uh, an officious bureaucratic uh, standpoint, if you're defending a state border, is really just trading literally, in some cases, literally with your relatives who are on the other side of the river uh, in places that you always expected to be able to reach. And so, I think right. you know I, th I think anybody can can understand and empathize uh, with that. And that, that, that continued on uh, 15 years later, of course, uh, that smuggling, uh, what quickly became a smuggling tradition, uh, was instrumental in making the region a hotbed of, um, uh, for the transit of Confederate cotton, uh, mm -hmm. you know, cotton going south, uh, guns going north uh, to, uh, to at least the Texas theater of the Civil War. Um, a lot of South Texans participated in that. One of the things I did yesterday was visit uh, the, uh, the main Catholic cemetery 
in in Laredo, I've got uh, several uh, ancestors uh, buried there. But um, uh, so I went to visit them. But I but I also saw uh, the uh, the graves of the three uh, Benavides brothers, uh, Refugio, Santos, mm-hmm. and uh, Cristobal. Uh, all three of whom were major uh, Confederate officers in Laredo. Uh, Santos Benavides led the defense of Laredo against the Union uh, against the Union attack in 1864. Mm-hmm. Very little known episode yeah. in the Civil War, uh, but what's what, what's fascinating about it is that these were Tejanos. These were men who were born in some cases under Spanish rule, but you know definitely identified as Mexican. They found right. themselves uh, you know found themselves in Texas after 1848, uh, and then when the Confederate period comes along. Uh, in Texas, they rise as as officers and really local heroes. And what I thought was especially interesting about their graves, uh, we should find a way to put the pictures up. Uh, actually, yeah, is that I'm sure is, we is can it put it in? They, they they you know they have um, uh, they they've got a pretty standard grave marker, uh, which you'll find at the Texas State Cemetery or you know any number of veteran cemeteries across the country, and it's got unit of service. And in this case, the the, the unit of service is typically CSA because they, they weren't in the Union Army; they were in the United States Army, they were in the Confederate Army. Um, but somebody has gone and decorated the graves. Typically, what you'll see uh, for for Confederate graves uh, across across the country is that somebody will put like a stars and bars on there, things like that. Mm-hmm. In Laredo, they put uh, US flags uh, on these Confederate graves, uh, which is very interesting. And it's because there's a qualitatively different experience uh, to to that period of history yeah. in South Texas with the Tejano population to the rest of the country. And so there's no contradiction to uh, to having that decoration on the grave of, right. of, of men who were, you know, frankly, Confederate era heroes of South Texas. All that to say, uh, you know, you know, we did we did see uh, the borderland. You know, not, not the first time for me uh, by by a long stretch. Um, but I love, I love this itinerary. Anybody who goes to South Texas, uh, you know, so for any of you out there listening or watching or thinking, you know, you really want to spend some time in the absolute hottest part of the country you can find. <sighs> Uh, definitely, definitely go down south and uh, start in McAllen and drive up river. Uh, you know, we, uh, you know, you, you tell me where you want to start with it. Uh, I think, I think uh, maybe the right place to start is actually where we started our day on Tuesday morning, which was getting on a boat um, uh, near, not out, but near the uh, the, the Anseldúas Park in uh, Hidalgo County, Texas. And uh, and going on the river and 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 uh, you know traveling up river and and seeing um, uh, you know the difference between the U.S. and Mexican side. Uh, right. can, do you mind if I talk a little bit about that? No, uh, I would love to, to hear about just that. Just to describe yeah. it, it's it's it was a new experience for me, uh, and I'm I, I'm relatively experienced with the border. But you know, one thing I'd never done is actually get on a boat and uh, and, and and travel up and down right. uh, the river. And uh, you know, you know what you what you see there on the Mexican side is actually quite distressing uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, we were only on the river for an hour, uh, so okay. I can't even say that we saw a lot, you know, compared to some folks who were able to, you know, spend several hours or even like a work day uh, patrolling the river. But what we saw was, first of all, a river completely devoid of, of, of licit commerce, except for the except for the actual uh, bridges. So there's no there's no you know fishermen, uh, boats. Um, uh, you can see piers from place to place, but nobody n- nobody boats on the river anymore, right. uh, which which is telling in itself. On the Mexican side, it is obvious that the entire south bank of the Rio Grande uh, is is under cartel control in some fashion, and it's especially stark here, which is the greater uh, the, the the nearest big city is. Reynosa, but uh, so there's kind of this conurbation that stretches from Brownsville, Matamoros, all the way up to um, uh, basically McAllen, Reynosa, and then it kind of, okay. and then and then there's there's paired cities uh, all the way up the rest of the river, Piedras Negras and, and Eagle Pass being one example. Uh, and on the Mexican side, it's it's uh, it, it's almost a dystopian um, uh, kind of a hellish uh, tableau, uh, as as you see. We saw. 
Uh, we encountered multiple individuals who were likely cartel lookouts, uh, some of them in uniform, uh, and, and we waved to them. You know, cause like you saw them on the other saw side. Them, saw them in the bank, and, and, and they were watching. There was one group in particular that would show up at one section of the bank, note where we were traveling. They would get in trucks, and then we would see them again uh, about no 15 minutes later downriver. Uh, or I'm sorry, upriver uh, in this particular case. Uh, but they would. They, it was it was clear that they were they yeah. were kind of tracking our progress. And so as part of that, uh, because the lookout system is is um, the, they call them the halcons, uh, the falcons. Halcons, you know, yeah. Halcons, uh, they, they, yeah, because they watch. Um, uh, it's so robust that uh, that uh, you know when we passed by places that were known to be stash houses, for example. Um, uh, they were they were deserted, and it's not because nobody was there. Like in in one case, you could hear the dogs barking. Um, uh, these were these were they were mean dogs too, so you didn't want to yeah. go up there. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, they cleared out. They didn't want to be seen. Uh, the people who didn't mind being seen, uh, and this was very heartbreaking, were the were the migrants uh, trapped on the south side. Uh, we saw a lot of individuals who were, you know, clearly either from 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 Haiti or, or Africa, uh, and um, uh, living in uh, trash-strewn landscapes. Uh, yeah, if you can imagine a, a kind of a cascade, a mountain of trash cascading down this very steep bank that's maybe uh, you know twenty to thirty feet uh, upriver. Um, uh, and at the bottom of it, you've got herds of pigs uh, that are rooting through the trash, and then you have people, small children, uh, kind of picking their way through, getting down to the riverbank to wash uh, in this in this filthy water, to collect water, to take back up the bank. It's heartbreaking. Uh, it's 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 absolutely heartbreaking. And the yeah. thing to, and the thing to understand, I was talking with one of our one of our colleagues who was who was there on the boat, is is you have to you have to see something like that. And understand two big things. One is that the individuals who who are living in these conditions are effectively prisoners. Um, uh, they can see the United States. They're right there. The river is 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 not too deep, honestly, two to three feet deep in a lot of cases. So it is possible to wade the river, you know, float across it with reasonable safety. Uh, and the reason that they don't is, of course, because they'll be killed uh, if they do so without cartel permission. Um, they also can't uh, they can't turn around and leave uh, uh, very easily. So so these are individuals who are trapped in truly horrific conditions. The other thing to understand is that is that there is a decision. By you know the individuals who should be the stewards of of, of Mexican civil society, uh, you know I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but uh, you know if you want to narrow it a little bit, think about um, you know the city fathers of Reynosa. It, right. If Reynosa has city fathers uh, at this point, you know worthy of the name. Um, but if you had uh, something like this in the United States, presumably. I'll exclude places like Portland and San Francisco, but if it's not if it's not a blue-run city uh, that's kind of going the way that those places are going, uh, there's no civic organization to come in and say, "Hey, we got to clean this up. We shouldn't have herds of swine, uh, you know, rooting through um, trash piles in which people are actually living, children are actually living. You know, people are trying to scrape out an existence there with all the the the, the refuse and the sewage and the you know just 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 in terms of plain humanity to these individuals. And so it absolutely breaks your heart. I'll close with one with one image uh, that really stuck with me on the river, and then we can talk. By the way, this is just the morning. Like We saw more as we went. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, th th there's a zoo. Um, every establishment along the bank uh, was deserted. So restaurants, homes, um, uh, you know, water facilities, and so on. And, and and weirdly enough, there was there was a zoo. It was like so it was like something out of Blade Runner. The yeah. So the zoo had been taken over by the cartel many years ago. Um, uh, they said it was uh, Cartel de uh, de, de Golfo. Uh, okay. at, at this point, yeah. I, I, who knows if it's true? I'm not going to go ask. Uh, but uh, but but the zoo's taken over, and uh, long ago the um, the animal cages had been opened, and uh, you know the people who like tigers took the tigers, and, and a lot of the animals just died. Um, but you go and, and it's an abandoned zoo. Uh, and so and so we're we're, we're taking the boat uh, by it, and there's some horses, which is actually not unusual to see uh, out there. And then um, uh, strolling toward the riverbank, 
serene, and absolutely out of place was a llama. What the heck? A llama, high altitude uh, South American right. uh, you know, you know, animal, and there was a llama there, uh, and apparently the llama, and I, I asked the guy who was, uh, who was showing us around, I said, is that a zoo animal? And he said, yeah, I said, this llama's a survivor. Um, you know, should have died long ago. This is not where he's supposed to be. He's not, you know, he's not built. He's covered in covered in wool, right? Right, and so and so it's it's Wait, hot. So like it's, over 100 degrees. Oh, it was about 106, oh, and uh, extremely high humidity. And you would think that the llama would have kicked off, but this llama, uh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, maybe he's the um, maybe the llama is the the bearer of the spirit of renewal. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> but uh, he he lived and he was going down to the river for a drink, and apparently he'd just been there loitering in the zoo for years uh and wow. uh, man yeah, yeah it's that's it's so random very 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 much so but 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 so indicative of the chaos that uh that these that these cartels and their abettors in the state um so uh, among you know among a mexican population that uh, candidly does not does not deserve this fate Right. And I'd love you to continue, you know, weaving in some of the things that you saw at the border. But I wanted to ask you about something. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've seen it. It just came out yesterday. Um, but this uh, this article that I was reading on the Houston Chronicle, which talks about how, since we're on the topic of migrants, how Texas troopers are now being ordered to separate families at the border. I know this is an old thing. Like, it's it's come up mm-hmm. before that, you know, families are being separated at the, at the border. But it's interesting to me because it does signify a new policy shift. Um, since Governor Abbott started with his border security efforts, back then they were told not to separate families, period. You know, unless, you know, unless the children traveling with the family were over 18, mm-hmm. then you could take the father of the family and you can arrest him for trespassing or you could take him into custody, right? Right. But apparently over two dozen families recently have been separated in the sense that the father has been arrested immediately as soon as he crossed the border. And then the families, as the, 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 the mothers and the children are being kept together. And so this is a new policy. A, a DPS spokesperson came out and talked about it saying, um, yes, this is happening, but the mother and children are, are are being kept together. And so, I just wanted: Have you heard about this? Um, no, I'm afraid you... I haven't. I'm 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 caught off guard. I mean, I'm aware that it was happening because I saw a headline, but I didn't I didn't read it. Do, do you know what the rationale they gave for the policy was? What the, no. did DPS talk about that? No, not, not okay. a lot. It's very it's very new. Yeah, um, it's like in so, the last 24 hours, right? Yeah. So yeah. we need to keep looking into it. But I just thought it was interesting that there's being these you know policy shifts recently. I can't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to try and read uh, the the policymakers' minds because I genuinely don't know. So, so, so for the sake of for the sake of those watching on later days, uh, I, I I don't know why the policy has been implemented right now. But I can, you know, if I had to guess, uh, I know that there have been real issues with what I'll call false heads of family um, uh, right. coming in, typically with children. Now, I don't know about uh, with 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 women and children and things like that. But uh, you know, we had a conversation yesterday in Laredo, uh, and I don't have I, I don't have permission to put this gentleman on the record, but he's somebody who who is very familiar with. Kind of what's happening happening with human trafficking, particularly in in, in the Laredo sector, uh, and and he told us this is not a surprise, unfortunately, because we've heard it before. But uh, he told us that uh, there is a um, the, the, there is a market for children, and and there's no other way to put it. As cruel and, and, and horrific as that sounds, uh, people will either um, uh, in in these places of origination, whether it's in Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras or anywhere else. Uh, they will they will either sell their children to traffickers, uh, or um, the children will simply be kidnapped uh, by gangs and pass along. So so if you can imagine being like a three year old, you know, playing in the yard and somebody comes and takes you, uh, and you know the parent will never will never see their child again. Uh, and and so I, I personally can't imagine 
a worse no. heartbreak than that. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but you know, and and so and then the reason it happens is because there's a theory that if you come with a family, if you come with children, then the United States is going to uh, you know be more likely to admit you uh, effectively that you have a much stronger claim to whatever it is, but whatever basis you're going to claim um, for asylum. And yeah, I mean, so that, that may or may not be true. I mean, set that aside. But that's, that, that is the perceived incentive that creates the market for children in this. So if I had to, if I had to guess, this is just top of mind, why would they be separating you know, putative heads of households? It might be to remove that incentive. I don't know. Right. I don't know the answer to that. We'll have to see how it plays out. But I, 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 I will, if, if I may add uh, just one thing on that, though, um, because because we have to uh, we have to be very clear eyed about what's happening. The gentleman with whom we were speaking in Laredo yesterday uh, told me that, um, uh, or told us uh, rather that uh, you know you know to find to find these individuals with kids and there's no way to know is you know are the kids yours and and sometimes he's, he said you could tell because the child obviously clearly does not know the adult. Uh, right. With whom they're traveling, um, but but other times you just don't know. Uh, you know, like a two-year-old is not a font of you know confirmable information. Um, uh, they caught one guy. This is an anecdote, but uh, they caught one guy who uh, had seven children with him. I believe they caught him in Jim. Just Hogg. one guy with well, seven. One man kids. with seven kids in Jim Hogg County, and uh, it turned out he was a sex offender. Oh my god! Uh, from Mexico, he's a pedophile, and he had seven children. And um, you know, uh, God knows uh, what what happened to those kids. Uh, but uh, but you know, th this is an individual. Now he was from south of the border. He's not an American citizen. Um, but uh, you know, he was able to he was able essentially to purchase to obtain seven children, uh, get to the United States, and then and then have them essentially undetected uh, for a long while. Uh, the the kind of the, the the coda to the tragedy of all this is that is that these kids. Uh, are trafficked here, and um, uh, you know, one uh, like best case scenario, they're actually with their real family, and the real family like loves them and cares for them, and they take them to wherever they're going. But you know, more common in many ways, in worst case, is that the kids are um, they're either abandoned, uh, you know, as soon as they reach a the destination. Okay, we're across the river. I'm in the United States. See you later, kid. Uh, you know, and the, the child often dies uh, in that case, um, especially if they're abandoned in the wild uh, out there. Uh, or uh, if that doesn't happen, then the kid is is put into the foster system, which is a whole different kind of chamber Oof. of horrors yeah. for uh, you know you know for these kids. They, I'm sorry, I said that was the last thing. Can I say one more thing? Yes, I apologize of uh, uh, for this. It just it keeps coming back. It's, it's just so awful. Uh, one of the um, DPS gentlemen with whom we spoke, uh, and by the way, I think you know it, it, it's obvious for anybody who goes to the border that DPS is doing the absolute best they can in extremely difficult scenarios. So, so I, I personally, especially after you know seeing what we saw and speaking with whom we spoke this week, I don't buy into a lot of the kind of the anti-Texas DPS narrative that's been promulgated in a lot of press. Um, but we can talk about that in a moment. Uh, uh, one of the troopers uh, told us um, uh, about seeing another scenario like this, where it was where it was a handful of adults with many more kids, small kids, and uh, they were crossing, and there was basically um, a sandbar in the Rio Grande, uh, which is pretty common. Like yeah. you can get, uh, you know, there's there's sandbars that are you know inches yeah. inches below the surface. And uh, and there was a child who uh, was not quite a toddler, but pretty close, maybe eighteen months old, uh, who was who was kind of plopped on the sandbar and sitting there in the middle of the river. And uh, the group organized itself, collected itself on the sandbar, and then they moved off. And you know, every person grabbed like a couple of kids and moved off. And uh, and they left the the uh, the small child there, just there what? on the sandbar. They they just left him there. They didn't care. And uh, and this trooper said that, that they were they're they're on the Texas bank. They can see him crossing. And uh, first they're observing. Then they realize they're just going to abandon the kid in the river. The kid the kid will die. The child will the child will drown. 
uh, and uh, and they start yelling, "Get the baby! Get the baby! Get the baby!" You know, you got to get the baby, get the baby, and they have to they have to go and they have to confront. They say, "Get back out there and get the kid, get him." These are not people who are related to these children. These no. are not people who care if these kids live or die. Uh, and uh, and so thank God uh, in this case, uh, you know, they, they did get somebody to turn around, re-enter the river, grab the child that they left in the river, and bring him to the Texas side. Um, but you know, when we talk about the things that we talk about and say that the most humane thing we can do is shut down this commerce, shut down this traffic, close this border. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about because this is the outcome. And you know, what starts is uh, you know very you know the passage that you read at the beginning, very sympathetic tales of people in Guerrero Viejo and Revilla and Mier who just want to sell their wares in in Roma across the river. It's not what it used to be. I get that. Yeah, that's not what's happening today. Right. That was happening in 1848. It's not happening in 2023. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for. Thank no, you for coming a... to my TED Talk, Melissa. Yes, go ahead. You've really managed to depress us all beyond repair. Um, <laughs> but since we're on depressing topics... It's not the first time. So go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you were saying how this there's this narrative a lot of the time, right? This is not what the migrants come here for. Mm-hmm. And even in the, the Houston Chronicle article that I was reading, at the end, they interview one of, one of the women that crossed and were separated from what she says is like the father of her children, right? Mm-hmm. And she talks about how she's she's up north somewhere now with her two children. Um, they're both sick. They're struggling. They don't have any money. And it just kind of made me reflect on how this is not what they came here for, right? Like a lot of the time they're told, come here, the borders are open, you'll get a job. It like, And, and then that's what drives them right into the grasp of the cartels, right? right. They're being exploited. Their, their money is taken away from them. They're often being abused. And so... It's just it's just very sad to think about and and I think it's very important for us to make sure that this hits home that the more the most inhumane thing that you could do is allow the suffering to continue on the course that it's on. Absolutely. And so on that topic um I wanted to ask you about so the buoy situation, just a couple of hours down the river. Yes. Um, Do you want to give a background on for our listeners on that? Yes. yes. So so for our listeners, that we talked about this a little bit last week mm-hmm. about these uh, big orange buoys that I think it's a thousand meters, maybe a stretch of about a thousand meters on yeah. the Rio Grande to prevent or to dissuade migrants from crossing the river to begin with. Yeah. And so a lot of people are saying, oh, the, you know, they're, they're inhumane, like we shouldn't be doing this, to which we ask... Like, what's the alternative to remove them and to, you know, give the con- the, the control of the border back to the cartels who are going to do worse things? Um, before the buoys were put in place, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border was already the most dangerous land crossing in the world. Right. People were already drowning. Like you said, the story with the kid, people were already being left in the heat mm-hmm. and no one no one cared to say anything. But now with the buoys, people are speaking up that have not spoken up about it before. And one of the groups that spoke up is um, the Mexican government. Just yes. just today, they released two statements. I don't know if you've, this was like maybe seen, two hours ago. I've seen both the statements, yeah. This is very recent, but yeah. the, um, the foreign ministry, the Secretaria de Relaciones Exteriores, first put out a statement uh, about a dead body that was found by the buoys. Uh, Entang- this entangled in the buoys. Entangled in the buoys yes. this morning. And so they you know, were expressing concern about this body and they used that to point you know, their, their finger towards the, bu- the buoys saying that they're inhumane, um, they're a violation of their sovereignty mm-hmm. and they're a violation of the human rights of the migrants. Right. And then shortly after they put out a second statement 
of another body that was found, not even by the buoys, but down, I think, five kilometers away in a different yeah. part of the river that had succumbed to the heat. Yeah. yeah. And so I think what was really fascinating to me about this is that they've never issued a statement like this before. They've never showed concern for the things that the migrants go through before. No. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. It's interesting timing, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, the the uh, the, the Mexican state has has uh, uh, led by the president of Mexico, um, you know, President Lopez Obrador, uh, the the man of the people himself, um, uh, has has been extremely vocal in its disapproval of the state of Texas uh, putting this buoy system outside of outside of Eagle Pass uh, uh, and 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 shutting down trafficking. You have to understand it in two ways because uh, they object to it on 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 two grounds. Uh, one one reason they object to it is uh, simply because it's good politics for them to attack Texas. Uh, there is this sort of right. this base Mexican nationalistic impulse to pick a fight with Texas. And they understand correctly that if they fight with Texas, they can probably get the Biden administration on their side. Make no mistake, the Biden administration's Department of Justice and the Mexicans are cooperating on the case uh, against against Texas that has been brought to bear on the courts. There's zero question about it. It's the same no messaging, same grounds, um, uh, putative treaty violations, and so on, all of which is incredibly spurious. Uh, so that's one reason they're doing it. The other reason they're doing it, though, and we have to be very clear-eyed about this, is that uh, shutting down human trafficking, shutting down trafficking in general, whether it's human or narcotics or anything else, cuts into the profit margins of the same people who are uh, in league with the Mexican state itself. Right. Who you does know? that hurt? Who does that hurt? Right, exactly. And so when we think about who many of the major traffickers are, INM, Sedena, which is the army, local power holders, uh, um, you know, the, the, give, give the president of Mexico credit for understanding his own patronage network. He knows he has to go to bat for them uh, in, in, in some way. And so it's, it's, it's pitiable in a sense. It's another uh, betrayal by the Mexican elite of uh, you know, what should be the greatness of the Mexican nation. Um, you're absolutely right that for all the countless deaths of migrants on the U.S.-Mexico border from exposure, from murder, from abandonment, on and on and on, the Mexican Foreign Ministry, SRE, uh, the Secretariat, has never issued a statement on any of them. And it is because they don't care. That's an uncharitable thing to say. It happens to be an accurate thing to say. It is because they don't care. They only care now because it can be used to score a political point on the behalf of their clientele and patronage networks versus the Texans. So as it happens, uh, you know, we know how that, that body of that you know, unfortunate you know, child of God ended up uh, entangled in the buoy system uh, in Eagle Pass. This individual uh, did, not, did not die entangled in the buoy system. The buoys are, are manned 24-7. Uh, there is somebody there. It would, be, it would be impossible for you to become entangled in the buoys without somebody seeing you uh, because there's actually you know, quite a few uh, you know, Texas law enforcement and National Guard present there in Eagle Pass. This individual died upriver, uh, and I believe it was a woman you were telling me. Uh, so her I thought corpse... so. That's what the Mex Mexican president said. He called her a joven, una joven. Una joven? Okay, well then, so. well then, there we go. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Uh, uh, I'll take his word for it. So, so as a young woman, uh, she, 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 she drowned up river, um, uh, somewhere we don't know where, uh, but she drowned at a, at a different crossing, and her and her corpse. Uh, it seems macabre to say it, but but we have to right. be, you know. But her corpse floated downstream and and, and, got, entangled. and, and, and got entangled. And, and the other individual who was killed. Um, or who died, uh, apparently of exposure, we think. I think uh, it was the heat. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Um, it didn't have anything to do with the buoy. So, so I mean, this, the, the, this is very crass 
politicking and advantage seeking um, right. uh, on, on the back of real human suffering, uh, real human tragedy. Uh, by the Mexican state, and it's uh, you know we should call it what it is. You know I want to be you know, we, we try to be dispassionate analysts here, and you know describe things as they are. Um, uh, but in this case, I'll depart from that a little bit and say it's it's loathsome. It's loathsome that uh, that the president of Mexico uh, and the whole class of individuals entrusted with the stewardship and the care of of the nation uh, to which they are charged um, could not be moved until now to say a word about the deaths of their own. And um, that's a shame, that's a yeah. shame. The Texas Department of Public Safety, and the Texas National Guard has done more to save migrant lives than the entire apparatus of the Mexican state has, ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. I wonder if they had known the details about that death and how it ended up in the buoys, if they would have even cared to begin with. Because I think the reason they put it out is because, like you said, it scores political points, and it's one more good reason to take a dib, a dig at the governor, which Emlo did this morning. Mm -hmm. He he was asked by a reporter about Governor Abbott, and he said he shouldn't act like this. It's inhumane. You don't treat anyone like that. That's not what good people do. Only by being good can we be happy. And you know, he's saying this about about Governor Abbott. Um, when he's allowed all of this injustice and all of these terrible things to happen with migrants at the border. So it's clear that's not the real issue and yeah. he's deflecting. No. And another interesting thing that I, I thought this was interesting. This was in the statement from the Secretaria this morning, but they talked about how unfortunate what's happening at the border is right now because they said this action does not align with the very close relationship that the gov governments of the United States and Mexico have maintained. Oh, yeah. So I don't know what I'm missing. Close relationship. They've not wanted to work with us for a very long time. It's a, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're dead on. It's a fiction that they have an interest in promulgating. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the policy class in Washington, D.C., especially under the Biden regime, uh, is, is perfectly willing to acquiesce to it. Yeah. They'll, 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 they'll swallow the fiction whole. Oh, yeah, they're our friends. Oh, yeah, we have to cooperate with them. Oh, yeah, it's this and that. You and I saw right. it in Mexico City when we talked right. with uh, you know, U.S. government personnel who for them could not imagine anything worse than the Mexicans refusing to cooperate. Well, it's everyone. It's everybody. Even yeah. now, like everyone is like, well, shouldn't we be focused on working with Mexico? And what about the diplomatic relations? Um, We'd if, love to work with Mexico. Yeah, we've if, tried. <laughs> if, if 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 they would work with us, and 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 candidly, I, th I think this is a point worth bringing out, uh, is that there's there's no state in the union that is more pro-Mexico and pro-Mexican than the state of Texas, right here in the Lone Star State. Partly because of our heritage, we have a robust Mexican-Spanish heritage, and so we have ties of sentiment and history, um, and we also have ties of prudence and commerce as well. And there's nobody that would want to work with Mexico more than the state of Texas. There's no question in my mind that Greg Abbott, who has, uh, I think, you know, labored mightily to do the right thing on the border, and we should give him full credit for that, right. um, would, would love nothing more than to be able to have a purely respect and commerce-based relationship uh, with Mexico. We have to be clear, it is the choices of the Mexican state that have led us to this impasse, and respect has got to start with them. Yeah. Well, speaking of respect, sure. they don't have any. Because I wanted to, I think you've read about this, but um, we, you know, we were speaking about the Biden administration. Sure. But AMLO once again last week uh, blasted the DEA mm -hmm. uh, for something that they said. So basically, 
Um, the DA administrate, um, administrator, Ann Milgram, um, was testifying not this Thursday, but last, so last week. Oh, yes. And uh, she was talking about the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco Nueva Generación cartel. And she was estimating their size and their reach. So she said a couple of things. Sure. Um, she said that both cartels have more than 40,000 operatives in over 100 countries around the world, that the Sinaloa cartel has presence in, in 19 out of the 32 Mexican states, mm-hmm. and the Jalisco one has a presence in 21 out of the 32 Mexican states. And then she says that they have identified that they both have members, associates, facilitators, and brokers around the world, and in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, no news to us. We've known about this for a very long time. We know they have a worldwide worldwide reach. Yes. But when AMLO was asked about these remarks, um, he was at a press conference in Nayarit on Friday. Um, he basically had four responses. The first one was, well, we don't have that information. Uh, I don't know where that lady got it from, is, is what he said. <laughs> uh, the second one was, what proof do they have? They don't have any proof. Yeah. And then the third he- thing that he said is, you know, the U.S. government has a lot of problems. They're very disorganized. They don't cooperate. Um, their departments don't cooperate. That You know, we used to have that problem here in Mexico, but we got organized, and now oh, yeah. we work together, and we don't have that problem anymore. Yeah. But the U.S., you, the U.S. is a mess. They got organized by uh, eliminating uh, bureaucratic independence. Right. Entirely, yeah. And then the last thing he said is, but U.S. authorities don't have good information anyway, so we shouldn't be listening to them, essentially, right. because, you, and then he recalled something from, from a while back, and he recalled, they once claimed that one third of Mexico's territory is controlled by criminal organizations. Ah, the Landau estimate, yes. Yeah, yeah, so so it's interesting, you know, he's denying all these claims, he's saying that the U.S. is a mess, that we don't have good information, but then when he was asked, well, like, what's the what is the real information, like, how many... How many states of of Mexico are these cartels actually operating in? He just completely evaded the question, and you so it doesn't seem like he knows either. You have to, yeah. Oh, he knows. So he knows. Right. Let's be clear. He doesn't. He doesn't want to make it clear that he knows. You have to look at the named organizations that the D is the DEA administrator Ann Milgram, right? That, yes. That, that's who's yep. speaking. So you have to look at the named organizations that, that the DEA administrator was speaking of. Nueva Generación, set them aside. Uh, but the Sinaloans, we know that the president of Mexico has an especial affection for. You know, of we can and we, you and I have talked about this uh, many yeah. times on this on the show. Uh, you know, he's visited the Chapito's mother. He's talked about how much he respects them. He's you know kind of bent over backwards. We we've had multiple reports from multiple sources that his party organization Morena has leveraged Sinaloan cartel muscle to win. You know, put that in quotes, but win elections uh, in in Sinaloa proper. Um, uh, so he's never had a bad thing to say about the Sinaloan cartel, ever. Ever, yeah. Ever. And he's even he, expressed sympathy. He's expressed sympathy. He springs to their defense. This is another datum in that roster, uh, mm-hmm. and in which he just he's it's it's clearly a trigger point for him, and he feels for whatever reason, and you know you know the informed viewer can speculate as to what that reason is, that he needs to uh, defend them. Against against you know what seems like a pretty anodyne estimate by the DEA administrator, uh, and so he does. And you know we should on on our side we should observe that, and uh, and and learn from it and take it for what it is. Yeah. Which is a signal as to um, uh, where he believes his real interests are. Yeah. 
Well, There's he's more. talking and we should listen. Yeah, um, no, exactly. You know, Rodney Scott on this this webinar that we just did uh, separate uh, this morning said something that I think is worth repeating, so I'll steal it from Rodney. Um, we have to create a different incentive structure uh, for them. You know, you know, one thing that you and I have talked over and over about is that the United States is never going to fix Mexico. Like, that's not our job. It's not what the foundation aims to do. You know, our, our, our goal is not to fix Mexico. Our goal is, is, is the defense and preservation of the way of life here in Texas primarily and then in the United States at large. Uh, uh, that being said, we can create different incentive structures vis-a-vis uh, -vis, you know, ourselves with the incentives that we right. do have, which we've never really maximized and we ought to um, uh, versus the Mexican state. And uh, right now, there's no incentive for a president of Mexico or a governor or anyone else um, to uh, work with or at least placate the United States versus the cartels. And so they respond to the incentives. They respond to the rational incentives uh, in this case. There's no penalty for doing the things that AMLO does. There's nobody in the Biden White House who's going to say, wait a minute, why are you so assiduous and avid in your defense of the Sinaloan cartels? They're not going to ask that question because they simply aren't intellectually equipped to do it. Um, but we can push policymakers in that direction, and we are, uh, and we can ask those questions ourselves, and we must keep asking it. Um, because eventually events will will culminate in everybody asking it. Uh, and the right. question is what happens when when what we get to that then? point. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, you know, as shocking as it is to see the president of Mexico so blatantly defending the cartels, mm -hmm. what's shocking to me is seeing that on the U.S. side. Like seeing it on the U.S. side, what seems to me to be the Biden administration making excuses for cartels. So last week, um, Secretary Mayorkas was testifying, and he was asked if during his ten tenure, cartels have gotten stronger or weaker. And he said that during his tenure as Secretary of Homeland Security, cartels have gotten weaker, which is, have you heard that? No, I didn't really. He, he really said that? He said, he he said, said they've gotten that, weaker yeah. since he's been I'll, in office? I'll see if I can put the, like, the time stamp here. But he was you know, being amazing. grilled, and he basically said, like, it's unprecedented, the actions that we've taken against cartels. He said they've gotten weaker, which is absolutely, like, it's beyond me. I've, got, I've gotten a lot of, this is something we've talked about a lot this week. I got a question about it yesterday. Wow. Yeah, so... Not even know, analysts on the left believe that. I mean, you know, people who disagree with us completely on it. But, Josh, it's not out there. No one's talking about this. Wow. Like, we, we saw it because we were watching the hearing. But when you try to look up the, the clip, uh, when you try to look up articles about it, you can't find anything. Nobody reports I on it. I had to look at the, you know, whatever it was, like a five-hour hearing mm -hmm. to find the clip and send it to our comms team to find it. The, wow. the clip about him saying this. And so I just wanted, I'm glad you haven't heard about this yet because I want to get your real reaction. <laughs> but to me, it was, it was just honestly, first of all, Embarrassing, sure. Because embarrassing for them, because there's polls. There's a recent poll that shows that 61% of Americans, most Americans, that's mm -hmm. a majority of Americans, Super majority, yeah. think that cartels have more control of the southern border than the current Biden administration. And for him to be saying that under him, you know, cartels are weaker than ever before, they're the best funded criminal organization in the entire world. And that's right, right now, we can thank the Biden administration and Secretary Mayorkas for making that happen, for making them richer, bolder, stronger than ever before. 
You know, um, uh, we, we've been very hard on on the state of Mexican civics. So, in fairness, we should turn our attention to American civics uh, yes. for a moment uh, because because <laughs> uh, there there are serious issues here too. And I think this is a great example of of some of those issues. Uh, you know, I'm I'm this is probably obvious. I'm considerably older than you, so I remember the Cold War uh, quite well. And there was a and there was a phrase uh, in the Cold War that politics stops at the water's edge. It was it was always more aspirational than true. It wasn't uh, you know it, it wasn't it was it was it was a goal rather than a reality in many cases, but it was still an admirable goal. It was supposed to be the standard that uh, whoever held the White House, whoever held the Congress, um, they would defend America the same. There was a common agreement on what it took to defend the United States, and um, and, and it mostly worked. I stress the word mostly, but it mostly worked. Um, uh, that doesn't seem to hold true uh, anymore, and, and, and you really have to ask yourself, uh, you know, with, with a federal government um, who's who's you know t- top tier officials sincerely you know they, they say things like that if they believe it they're delusional if they don't believe it they're liars right. so there's not a lot of good outcomes on that um, you know we, we talked with some landowners yesterday and uh, no pardon me two days ago we talked to some landowners and uh, th- these were men in some cases again I don't have permission to identify them on camera but uh, you know some of them uh, were still on ranch land from the original porciones that their ancestors had received 300 years ago from the king of Spain. So these are these are individuals with deep, deep roots uh, and real Spanish slash Mexican heritage as well. And and they were, you know, they're suffering grievous economic losses. Um, you know, several of them have had guns pointed at them. You know, we talked to a guy who uh, encountered a, um, uh, basically a squad's worth of of, of men with, uh, with 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 rifles who, um, you know, he thought they were going to kill him on his own property in the state of Texas. And uh, and you know they they asked they asked us um, you know you know what uh, is the United States going to protect us? One of the guys uh, who I had a great empathy for said said you know I, I serve I serve my country in the army. I'm I'm a very proud American. You know I'm you know, my first language is Spanish and uh, and I'm from South Texas, but I'm I'm 100% American and I wore the uniform and uh, I expect the United States to defend my community, to right. defend my way of life, to do this. As it should. And, uh, you know, th- th- this, is, this is sort of the kind of the larger danger of what's happening at the southern border. And it's something that Washington, D.C. is completely oblivious to. Um, uh, you know, if, if the United States is not going to uh, uphold its end of the social contract, if it's not going to do the things that the Constitution in its preamble says it should do, you know, you know, provide for, you know, secure the common defense, provide for domestic tranquility, or provide for the common defense, secure domestic tranquility. I apologize to my civic students out there. Uh, if it doesn't do those things, what good is it? What's it for? Uh, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not asking that as as a rhetorical lead-in to, well, we should go it alone. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is the fact that people ask those questions. Right. Ordinary citizens who have no interest and any kind of radicalism or overturning the order are starting to ask those questions because they have been genuinely abandoned. And they're sick of it. They're sick of it. But people like Mayorkas, you know, who's who's up there in Washington, D.C., saying, oh, the cartels are clearly weaker. Patting himself on the back. Oh, right. I mean, absolutely. And, and, and no hope of real substantive change. That is such a dangerous situation. You might get, I'm going to stereotype my brothers and sisters from California, but... They kind of deserve it. You might be, you get Californians to submit to that indefinitely. In the long run, you won't have Texans submit to it indefinitely. Yeah. You, you cannot threaten a way of life in the way that the way of life, especially in South Texas, in the South Texas that my family's from, indefinitely without something breaking in the long run. Not with the tradition and the history and the character 
that that region has. Uh, and Washington, D.C. is playing with fire. To Austin's credit, to the governor's credit here in Texas, uh, there's a recognition of that. I think they're doing as much as they can. Um, but we're not at the end point of this saga by a long shot. And I, I, I for one, am tremendously worried for the civics of the United States, uh, not just our region, but writ large, given what comes next in this. Yeah, I think that's a very that's very accurate. And when you ask what good is it, we've talked about this before, right? And a lot of people that don't want to be involved in politics have had to ask themselves this question, right? Yes. We have, as you say, a, a very strong and robust military, right? And they are deployed to all sorts of things around the world. And honestly, they should be, right? Sure. But they're not on American soil protecting American lives in places that honestly you can drive to in drive to. In, in, in a couple of hours. That's right. And that's insane. And and yeah, I mean, the um, you know, we, we should probably close close with this pretty quickly because we're almost at the end of the hour. But uh, the uh, you know, to, just to invoke another Cold War commonality, and I, I don't remember who said this. It might have been a Reagan quote, but um, uh, the, the, there was there was this assertion made during the Cold War that the beauty of the free world versus the communist bloc was that in the free world, if you wanted to, you uh, didn't have to be political. You could ignore politics. Like you could get up and you know there's people who just didn't bother to vote and things like that, or they didn't really have a political opinion, they didn't get involved, and you could do that because it was a free country and people would right. largely leave you alone. I mean, that was that was basically, you could, live, you could live free and politics weren't your first concern. And in the communist world, of course, everything is political, and so so you had to worry. You had to worry constantly about politics. Who's in power? What do they expect of me? What sign should I put in the shop window? And so on. It's it's a very it's a constricting way of life. Um, uh, what's happening at the border is unfreedom coming in by virtue of the insecurity, and it's forcing people to be political who would rather not be. Uh, in that sense, and um, uh, in that sense, there's something un-American about what's being done to that region. And it's not going to stop with them. It's going to affect and is affecting the entire country. So how's that? You said I depressed you earlier uh, you in the did. show. And I was hoping that something. I don't think things have improved. No, no. So I think yeah. we need to wrap up before it gets worse. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I wanted to, you know, like cheer us up before that. But it seems like this will just be a depressing episode. But we'll be back <laughs> next week. <laughs> yes. So thank you, Josh. It's good to have you back. Thank Thanks, you. Melissa. And thank you to all of our listeners. And uh, we'll see you next time.